right, so uh, hello everyone and welcome to Dead Twenty Tires, the tabletop role-playing game podcast where the die decides our topic. <laughs> I'm Dylan. <laughs> I'm Jenny. And this week we're going to talk about the father of role-playing games, Gary Gygax, born Ernest Gary Gygax in March 4th of two... Er, I'm sorry, July 27th of 1938... He then died on March 4th of 2008 at the age of 69. Nice. Not nice that he died, but it memes. Um, as dude, I not a lot of people hear the name anymore. Like, a lot of people in the hobby are at least familiar with the name of Gary Gygax as the creator of D&D. At least the co-creator, because he was a co-creator of D&D. But he actually was a very a very solid presence in the miniature wargaming community for a very long time before he before he started work on Dungeons and Dragons and even founded uh, Gen Con. Like, like, he made it. The first one was in his basement. Could you imagine something like, like Gen Con just being in your house? <laughs> no, not really, no. Wild stuff. So he was born in Chicago, uh, the son of Almina Emily uh, Posey, and a violinist named Ernst Gygax. And he was named Ernest after his father, but he was usually known as Gary, uh, which is the middle name his mother gave to him after the actor Gary Cooper. And then they moved to uh, Lake Geneva in Wisconsin whenever he was uh, pretty young still. I I don't remember the exact age. Uh, It was in 1946. So he was seven, seven, eight years old, something like that. Uh, so he moved to Wisconsin, and he he was a, a very nerdy kid, one would say. Uh, he really liked uh, playing chess, you know, loved like reading science fiction novels and things of the like, uh, and he even started LARPing at a very young age. I, I don't think it was called LARPing back then, it was just kind of their games of make-believe, but they would have, you know, uh, they as friends, would play these like little games of make-believe, but they would actually have rules and they would... Uh, have one of their friends play as a referee while the other two were, you know, reading and writing and such. And uh, as teenagers, they would design their own rules for miniature wargaming. They would just take toy soldiers and, you know, being the rambunctious teenagers and in the prime of their youth, they would even throw firecrackers down and use them to simulate explosions. (laughs) And yeah, it was wild, apparently. He uh, and he just loved these kinds of games. He was just a big old nerd, and he was a huge fan of like pulp fiction novels, like writers like Robert Howard, Jack Vance, uh, Fritz Lieber. Uh, Lovecraft was a big influence on him. Edgar Rice Burroughs. He loved all this kind of stuff, and he was a nerd through and through. But he was just a terrible student, a terrible, terrible student. He he didn't dedicate himself to his studies at all because all he wanted to do was play these kinds of fantasy games that he enjoyed. And a few months after his father died, he dropped out of high school in his junior year. Uh, he was in the Marines after that for a very short time, but was diagnosed with walking pneumonia and given a medical discharge. So he had to move back home. And uh, so uh, after that, he became a shipping clerk for an insurance company. And uh, shortly after that, he was introduced to a war game called Gettysburg, uh, produced by Avalon Hill. And he became completely obsessed. He would play marathon sessions of this. Um, he would play a game at least once a week. And uh, he would uh, also, from Avalon Hill, order hex mats for 
games like Gettysburg, wherein he then started designing his own war games off of this, where I, I think he was at least a co-creator of a war game called Chainmail, which was very heavily based on uh, medieval warfare. And at first it was very realistic medieval warfare, where you'd have, you know, foot foot soldiers, infantrymen using spears and chainmail and plate mail and swords and shields, that kind of thing. And he wanted these games to be more realistic than they were. You know, he thought that war games are very oversimplified. So he started doing things like, you know, if a if a unit has a sword and shield, then that's what it uses as opposed to having a spear. If it's only got a shield but no armor, then it needs to behave like it only has a shield and no armor rather than having the same chances of success as some somebody having a shield but also full plate mail. So he started developing, you know, armor rules, half armor rules, shield rules, weapon rules. And he realized at the time, six-sided dice were all that was used. And that's still pretty common in war games today. Things like 40K, War Machine, things like that. They, they predominantly use six-sided dice to determine the outcomes of events. But he decided that there's not enough variation there. There's not enough element of chance to these kinds of things. You, you can't move the slider to one way or the other very much because you only have six results. So he started using um, these other polyhedrons uh, of the five platonic solids. Uh, which is a whole big thing. If you want to know what the platonic solids are, look at any you know tabletop dice gaming set. That's what they are. But uh, long and short of that, so I don't get too big into being a math nerd, is that the platonic solids are the shapes that you can get wherein if you have all of the sides uh, touching each other, then they will come together to form one singular shape where you know, all the sides of a triangle touch all the other sides of a triangle to create a pyramid and that kind of thing. And there's only five of those that exist that can exist geometrically. I never knew that. And that is really cool. I was always curious <laughs> as to why that kind of thing was used. But now I know. And that is really, really cool. Well, I'm a big old fucking nerd. So I learned. Something. moving on. <laughs> so he played Gettysburg like fanatically and not long after that he was uh reintroduced to one of his childhood friends mary joe powell who as a child had left lake geneva wisconsin and returned not too long after gary gygax got involved with gettysburg and became obsessed with it and he fell in love persuaded her to marry him and this actually caused some friction with his best friend at the time don k who was also very much in love with mary joe powell uh-oh. And caused so much friction to the point where Kay refused to attend their wedding. Oh, yikes. And they later reconciled, but it, it caused some friction in that relationship uh, where they then moved to Chicago. He became a shipping clerk for another insurance company, uh, found a found a job for his wife there, too. But after she became pregnant with their first child, she was laid off. He was taking anthropology classes, worked for the 1960s presidential election, was doing all these kinds of you know things, trying to make money keep himself busy, mostly to supply his hobbies of playing these war games. And he was very committed to his job. And at this point, he was pretty committed to his education as well. But his big thing was that he loved playing these war games to the point where at one at one point, his wife, Mary Jo, while she was pregnant with his second child, saw he was gone just so often that she was like, he is having an affair. There is no way he is spending all this time playing these games. He's banging some other woman only to charge in and just find him and a group of friends just crowded around a table moving miniatures around. (laughs) 
I don't know, like, if if I would be relieved or even more worried at that point. So in 1967, he co-founded the International Federation of Wargamers, or the IFW, with uh, friends Bill Spear and Scott Duncan. Uh, and that was a group that grew very rapidly because they assimilated other pre-existing wargaming clubs. Uh, and they were aiming to promote interest in these war games through all time periods, not just medieval, not just modern day, uh, but any kind of war game. If you enjoyed it, you had a place to play it. Nice. <clears throat> and they had their newsletters, their societies, you know, they would uh, have local groups to share rules. And uh, he even in 1967 organized a 20 person gaming meet in the basement of his own home, which was Gen Con Zero. It was the proto Gen Con. He had 20 people just in his basement. That's so cool. I still think that is the next year. The next year, Gygax uh, rented Lake Geneva's horticultural hall for $50, which would be equivalent to about $370, $380 today to hold the first Lake Geneva convention, also known as Gen Con. And that kept going to become one of North America's largest annual hobby game conventions. Just out of a group of people that he initially just shoved into his basement to play war games with. <laughs> I love the way you said it, that. Just shoved into his basement. Get in my basement! Uh, so it was here at Gen Con that he met David Arneson, who was a friend of his and co-creator of Dungeons and & Dragons. Ooh. And he that didn't start... That didn't happen until for another few years yet. It was... Uh, I believe, yeah, just another year later, uh, Don K., Mike Reese, Leon Tucker, and Gary Gygax created a military miniature society called the Lake Geneva Tactical Studies Association, again with headquarters being in Gygax's basement. <laughs> and then shortly after that, Robert Kuntz and Gary Gygax also founded the Castle and Crusade Society as part of the IFW, the International Federation of Wargamers for you know a more specialized kind of war game and in october of that year he lost his job at the insurance company after nine years of employment there and at this point he had five children a family of five children to support and he just lost his job and he wanted to use his enthusiasm for designing these kinds of games to pay the bills but it wasn't sustainable at the time he only made about 882 bucks through all of uh 1971 so he began cobbling shoes in his basement for income, which is, which is a wild sentence for somebody of my age to say. <laughs> that this man was so addicted to wargaming that he cobbled shoes in his basement to feed his five children. What is this? The Dark Ages? Good God. I think he fit into... Uh into the world he would end up helping to create rather well. <laughs> that's, that's that's such a wild thing to think about, that in 1971, Gary Gygax was in his basement cobbling shoes for shillings so that he could buy his games, pay for his five children. Right. Care for a shine, sir. So, so in 1971, he was doing editing work at Guidon Games, which published these war games, and he produced the board games of Alexander the Great and Dunkirk, the Battle of France. He also published Chainmail, which was a mini war game that simulated medieval era combat. And he originally 
wrote this with a hobby shop owner named Jeff Perrin. And they were originally published in the Castle and Crusade Society's uh, magazine called the Domesday Book. And it was after uh, he published Chainmail and, of course, his board games, Alexander the Great and Dunkirk, that Guidon Games hired him officially to produce a Wargaming with Miniatures series of games, and a new edition of the game Chainmail was the first book in that series, and included a fantasy supplement to the rules, wherein before it was just accurate medieval warfare. Uh, they included now a system for warriors, wizards, and monsters, and stuff that was based on Tolkien's books, which, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien was, of course, another very big interest for Gygax at a young age. And for a very small publisher that only you know, operated out of their local area, Chainmail was selling 100 copies a month, which is incredibly successful, especially at that time. He then went on to collaborate on a game called Tractics with friends Mike Reese and Leon Tucker. And his biggest contribution was changing to a 20-sided spinner or a coffee can with 20 poker chips in it that they would randomly draw out of, which eventually became the 20-sided die because of the uh, platonic solids, as I mentioned earlier, being easy ways to uh, have that. And then also that year he collaborated with Dave Arneson to create the Napoleonic naval war game, Don't Give Up the Ship. And then they adapted the rules for uh, from Chainmail for a Blackmore campaign very briefly in the fall of 1972. And then in uh, late November, Dave Arneson and friend David McGarry inventor of the dungeon board game, traveled to Lake Geneva to showcase their respective games to Gygax because he was a representative of Guidon Games. And he saw potential in their games, uh, especially excited by, uh, you know, Blackmore, which was Arneson's role-playing game. And even though Guidon didn't publish these because they were specifically a mini wargaming publisher and they didn't understand the facets of role-playing and they thought it was going to be a bad investment, it was in this excitement for um the you know the rules that he had published for chainmail being adapted to a more fantasy kind of campaign that started into work that became D&D Dave Arneson and uh Gary Gygax started working on what they initially just called the fantasy game it was 2 weeks after the Blackmore de- demonstration that Arneson gave that Gygax had managed to produce a 50 page set of rules and began playing this game, playtesting it with his two oldest children, Ernie and Elise, and wrote the setting of Greyhawk, which is one of the largest and most fleshed-out settings in D&D today. Good luck. My chair is being very loud. So the group then very rapidly expanded to include Don Kay, Rob Koontz, and had... You know, just a huge circle of players. I think at one point he had 20 people coming just about every week to his basement to play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and just based on the feedback that they were constantly giving him, he, by the end of, or by the middle of 1973, had a 150 page revision to Dungeons and Dragons. And Gary thought that these were, you know, very successful, very good changes. But uh, it was at this point kind of a schism between Gygax and Arneson. Uh, kind of began to grow because Arneson, you know, being the original creator of this kind of rule set, he he didn't like all the changes that Gygax was making. And they started having differences on, you know, certain ways that the game should be played. So 
right then started becoming kind of a schism between the two of them. And by the end, uh, God, sorry, by the end of 1974, the Greyhawk group, which just started with him and, you know, some close friends and his kids did grow to be more than 20 people with Rob Coons becoming a co-dungeon master so that they could at least cut it down so that each group was only a dozen people. Only a dozen people. Only a dozen people. I Listen, trying to wrangle eight people is a pain in the ass. Dude, me trying to wrangle my four, five, I don't know, my handful is like almost too much for my brain to handle. Even though my players are all super and they will jump if I say... Yeah, I don't like. I don't know how he manages this. Like Gary Gygax has to have some like galaxy brain ass DMing skills to be able to, and I, I suppose he must have because he created this system. But like, good night. I know, right? Goodness gracious! Only a dozen people. Only a dozen people. So, in in October of 1973, uh, Gary left Guidon Games and with Don K as a partner founded Tactical Studies Rules Incorporated, later known as just TSR Inc. Each of them invested $1,000 into it, with K borrowing his share on his life insurance policy in order to print 1,000 copies of the D&D box set. They tried to raise money by publishing a set of war game rules called Cavaliers and Roundheads, but those did not sell terribly well, and the printing costs for the 1,000 copies of D&D rose from $2,000 to $2,500, again, in 1970s money where everything was, you know, worth something. So they still didn't have enough money to publish these things that they really wanted to do to get their game out that they wanted. So they were starting to worry that, you know, they had a lot of these playtesters and other Wargamer friends who knew these rules and were, you know, getting very acquainted with it. And they were kind of worried that since they couldn't get their product out there in time, that some of their other friends who maybe did have the capital to front this kind of thing might you know, make their own version of it and push it out there first, kind of leave their product on the back bar- back burner. And it was that fear that kind of uh, pushed them to accept an offer from an acquaintance of theirs, Brian Bloom, who invested $2,000 in TSR to become an equal partner. So Bloom's investment finally gave them the financing they needed. Gygax is working on more rules for miniatures and tabletop games, including Classic Warfare and Warriors of Mars. And the first commercial version of D&D under these conditions was released in January 1974 as a box set. That's so cool. And the original hand-assembled print run, a thousand copies of Dungeons & Dragons, the original, was put together in Gygax's home. Like he himself and his acquaintances and friends made these books themselves. And they sold out in less than a year. Nice. That's pretty cool. You spend all this time on something, and then, you know, within a year you're out of product because people liked it so much. Yeah, it definitely had to be a good sitting. And in 2018, just as a bit of trivia, a first print of the box set sold for more than $20,000 at an auction. Nice. So, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a decent condition original box set of uh, D&D, sitting on some gold there, bud. Definitely. So at the end of 1974... With the sales of Dungeons and Dragons skyrocketing and the future looking bright for Gygax and Kay, who were only 36 at the time, uh, Kay unexpectedly died of a heart attack. He had not made any specific provisions in his will regarding his one-third share of the company, simply leaving his entire estate to his wife, Donna. And although she had briefly, 
briefly worked briefly. What the fuck is briefly? Things that come out of my mouth. <laughs> Although she worked briefly for TSR, she did not share her husband's enthusiasm for gaming and made it clear that she wouldn't have anything to do with managing the company. And he, she was characterized by Gygax as less than personal, saying that after Don had died, she dumped all of the TSR rules materials on his porch and just walked away. Whoa. After, <laughs> yeah. After Kay's death, TSR was forced to relocate from Kay's dining room to Gygax's basement once again. I'm pretty sure, like, a chaos god is being formed in Gygax's basement at this point. Yeah. So in July of 1975... Gygax and Bloom reorganized their company from a partnership to a corporation called TSR Hobbies. Gygax had 150 shares, Bloom owned 100 shares, and both had the option to buy up to 700 at any time in the future. But TSR Hobbies had nothing to publish, because D&D was still owned by the three-way partnership of DS- three-way partnership of TSR, and neither Gygax or Bloom had the money to buy the shares owned by Kay's wife. Bloom persuaded a reluctant Gygax to allow his father, Melvin Bloom, to buy Donna's shares, and those were converted to 200 shares in TSR Hobbies. In addition, Brian bought another 140, and these purchases reduced Gygax from the majority shareholder in control of the company to minority shareholder and effectively turned him into the Bloom's employee. Oh. So he then went on to write the supplements Greyhawk, Eldritch Wizardry, and Swords and Spells for the original D&D. And with Brian Bloom, he also designed the Wild West-oriented role-playing game Boot Hill. In the same year, Gygax created the magazine The Strategic Review with himself as an editor, but wanting a more industry-wide periodical, he hired Tim Kask as TSR's first employee to change this magazine to the fantasy periodical The Dragon, with Gygax as a writer, columnist, and publisher from 1978 to 1981. In 1976, TSR moved out of Gygax's house into its first professional home, known as the Dungeon Hobby Shop. Dave Arneson was hired as part of the creative staff, but was let go after only 10 months because Gygax and Arneson were still having such massive creative creative differences over the creation of D&D. Oh, okay. Well, I can kind of understand that. So the D&D Basic set released in 1977... It was an introductory version of the original Dungeons & Dragons geared toward new players, edited by J. Eric Holmes. And in the same year, TSR Hobbies released a completely new and complex version of D&D called Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. The Monster Manual released later that year, becoming the first supplemental book of the new system, and many more followed. The AD&D rules were not fully compatible with those of the D&D basic set, and as a result, D&D and AD&D became distinct product lines. Splitting the game lines created a further rift between Gygax I can breathe, I promise. Splitting the game lines created a further rift between Gygax and Arneson. Although Arneson received a 10% royalty on sales of D&D products, Gygax refused to pay him royalties on AD&D, claiming it was a new and different property. In 1979, Arneson filed a lawsuit against TSR. It was eventually settled in March 1981 that, with the agreement that Arneson would receive a 2.5% royalty on all AD&D products, giving him a very comfortable six-figure annual income for the next decade. Gygax then wrote the AD&D hardcovers, The Player's Handbook, The Dungeon Master's Guide, The Monster Manual, and The Monster Manual 2. He co-wrote numerous AD&D and basic D&D adventure modules, including The Keep on the Borderlands, Tomb of Horrors, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, The Temple of Elemental Evil, The Forgotten Temple of Theras Dune, Mordenkainen's Fantastic Adventure, Isle of the Ape, and all seven of the modules later combined into The Queen of Spiders. 
In 1980, Gygax's longtime campaign setting of Greyhawk was pun- punished. It was punished. It's a bad, bad setting. It needs to be punished. <laughs> Published in the form of the World of Greyhawk Fantasy World setting, which was expanded in 1983 to an, into the World of Greyhawk Fantasy game setting box set. Sales of D&D reached, gosh, reached $8.5 million in 1980. Whoa. And Gygax also provided assistance to the Gamma World science fiction fantasy role-playing game in 1981 and co-authored the Gamma World Adventure Legion of the Gold. In 1979, James Dallas Egbert III allegedly disappeared into his school's steam tunnels while playing a live-action version of D&D. Egbert was discovered in Louisiana a few weeks later, but negative mainstream media attention focused on D&D as the cause. In 1982, Patricia Pulling's son killed himself. Blaming D&D for her son's suicide, Pulling formed an organization named BAD, B-A-D-D, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons, very creative naming, you suck, go away. (laughs) Yeah, that's just, uh, oh. She made this organization to attack the game and the company that produced it. Gygax defended the game on a segment of 60 Minutes, which aired in 1985, and when the death threats started arriving at the TSR, TSR office, Gygax hired a bodyguard. Despite the negative publicity, or perhaps because of it, TSR Annuals Dean's... Oh my gosh, I can... Sp- I can... I Dylan, talk, please. You got this, Dylan. Brain make word from mouth do. Uh, TSR's annual D&D sales increased in 1982 to $16 million. And in January 1983, the New York Times speculated that D&D might become the great game of the 80s in the same manner that the Monopoly was emblematic of the great... Great... Depression. At this point, Brian Bloom persuaded Gygax to allow Brian's brother Kevin to purchase Melvin Bloom's shares. This gave the Bloom brothers a controlling interest, and by 1981, Gygax and the Blooms were increasingly at loggerheads over management of the company. Gygax's frustration at work and increased prosperity from his generous royalty checks brought a number of changes to his personal life. He and Mary Jo had been active members of the local Jehovah's Witnesses, but others in the congregation already felt uneasy about Gygax's smoking and drinking. His connection to the satanic game of D&D caused enough friction that the Gygaxes finally dissociated themselves from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mary Jo, continuing to resent the amount of time her husband spent playing games, had begun to drink excessively, and the couple argued frequently. Gygax, who had started smoking marijuana when he lost his insurance job in 1970, started to use cocaine and had a number of extramarital affairs. Finally, in 1983, the two had an acrimonious divorce. So... Today we learned that not only did Gygax smoke pot, but whenever he started having problems with the Broom Brothers, Broom Brothers, <laughs> and had to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses, which are a cult, by the way, <laughs> he started doing crack and cheating on his wife. Damn, that's wild. <laughs> yeah, like I've—I mean, I've known some Jehovah Witnesses in the past that turned from their faith but none of them that i know were like you know what i'm gonna go do crack (laughs) damn i mean i guess i guess if you're the rock star creator of DD, you can do whatever you want apparently So it was about this time, the Blooms, who were wanting to get Gygax out of Lake Geneva so that they could manage the company without his interference, 
split TSR Hobbies into TSR Inc. and TSR Entertainment Inc. Gygax became the president of TSR Entertainment Inc., and the Bloom sent him to Hollywood to develop a TV and movie op- movie opportunity. He became the co-producer of the licensed D&D cartoon series for CBS, which led its time slot for two years. Gygax, who is now newly single, also took advantage of his time on the West Coast, renting an immense mansion, increasing his cocaine use, and spending time with several young starlets. When you're the rock star creator of <laughs> D&D, you can move out to the West Coast in a, into a mansion, do crack, and spend time with young starlets. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, this is this not is... what I was expecting to hear tonight. Yeah, th- this isn't the road I thought I was going to go down today, but here we are. <laughs> oh, where am I, why am I in this hand basket? Where am I going? Oh, it's wild. So, because he was out west, Gygax had to leave the day-to-day operations of TSR to Kevin and Brian Bloom. In 1984, after months of negotiation, he reached an agreement with Orson Welles to star in a D&D movie and John Borman to act as producer and director. Orson Welles, by the way. That would be crazy. But at the same time, he received word that back in Lake Geneva, TSR had run into severe financial difficulties and Kevin Bloom was shopping the company for $6 million. Gygax immediately threw his movie away, he did not care, and flew back to Lake Geneva. There he discovered to his shock that all... Although industry leader TSR was grossing $30 million, it was barely breaking even, and it was in fact $1.5 million in debt and teetering on the edge of insolvency. How? (laughs) It gets more wild. After investigating the reasons why, Gygax brought brought his findings to the five other company directors. Gygax charged that the financial crisis was due to mismanagement by Kevin Bloom, Excess inventory, overstaffing, too many company cars, and some questionable and expensive projects such as dredging up a 19th century shipwreck. Gygax demanded that Kevin Bloom be removed as company president, and the three outside directors agreed with him. However, the board still believed that the financial problems were terminal and the company needed to be sold. In an effort to stay in control, in March of 1985, Gygax exercised his 700 share stock option, giving him just over 50% control. He appointed himself president and CEO, and rather than selling the company, he took steps to produce new revenue-generating products. To that end, he contacted Dave Arneson with a view to produce some Blackmore material. He also bet heavily on a new AD&D book, Unearthed Arcana, a compilation of material culled from Dragon Magazine articles, and he quickly wrote a novel in his Greyhawk setting, Saga of the Old City, featuring a protagonist called Gord the Rogue. In order to bring some financial stability to TSR, he hired a company manager, Lorraine Williams. When Unearthed Arcana was released in July, Gygax's bet paid off, and the new book sold 90,000 copies in the first month. Nice. That's a lot. His novel also sold really well, and he immediately published a sequel, Artifact of Evil. The financial crisis had been, inver- been averted, but Gygax had paved the way for his own downfall. In October of 1985, the new manager, Lorraine Williams, revealed that she had purchased all of the shares of Kevin and Brian Bloom after Brian had triggered his own 700 share option. Williams was now the majority shareholder and replaced Gygax as president and CEO. She had also made it clear that Gygax would be making no further creative contributions to TSR. Several of his projects were immediately shelved and never published. Gygax took TSR to court in a bid to block the Bloom's sale of their shares to Williams, but he lost. 
Sales of D&D reached $29 million in 1985, but Gygax, seeing his future in TSR as untenable, resigned all positions within TSR Inc., and in October of 1986, settled his disputes with TSR, and by the terms of his settlement with TSR, Gygax kept the rights to Gord the Rogue as well as D&D character names who were anagrams or plays of his own name, own name examples being Irag and Zagig. However, he lost the rights to all of his other work, including the world of Greyhawk and the names of all the characters he had ever used in TSR materials, such as Mordenkainen, Robilar, and Tensor. Fun fact, if you see a named character in a D&D core rulebook or in one of the primary fantasy settings, it was probably a character that Gygax himself played at some point. I think he had something like 20 characters he would actively play. That's insane. Like... Yeah. Holy Dude's God. mind had to be racing at a million miles an hour, like, all the time. Yeah. And, like, to think that you put all this work into this, and then through some corporate bullshittery, they're just like, no, you're not going to make anything else. You made us all this money, but you're not going to help anymore. Go away. Yeah. Lorraine Williams apparently had it out for him just for the get from the get-go. So immediately after leaving TSR, Gygax was approached by a wargaming acquaintance, Forrest Baker, who had done some consulting work for TSR in 1983 and 1984. Gygax, who was tired of the company management, was simply looking for some way to market more of his Gord the Rogue novels, but Baker had a vision for a new gaming company. He promised that he would handle the business end while Gygax could handle the creative projects. Baker also guaranteed that, using Gygax's name, he would be able to bring in $1-$2 million of investment. Gygax decided this was a good opportunity, and in October of 1986, New Infinities Productions, Inc. was publicly announced. To help him with the creative work, Gygax poached Frank Menser and Dragon Magazine editor Kim Mohan from TSR. But before a single product was released, Forrest Baker left NIPI when his promised outside investment of $1-$2 million failed to materialize. Against his will, Gygax was back in charge again. He immediately looked he immediately looked for a quick product to get NIPI off the ground, and he had retained rights to Gord the Rogue as part of his severance with TSR, so he licensed Greyhawk from TSR and started writing new novels beginning with Sea of Death. Sales were brisk, and Gygax's Gord the Rogue novels ended up keeping new infinities in business. Gygax brought in Don Turnbull from Games Workshop, the people who made Warhammer and 40k, to manage the company, then worked with Mohan and Menser on a science fiction-themed RPG, Cyborg Commando, which was published in 1987. However, sales of the new game were not brisk. The game received overwhelmingly negative reception, and NIPI was dependent on Gord the Rogue. Northam. I'm going to start cutting a few of the things short now because we're starting to run a little low on time. So, NIPI was uh, active until about the year 1989. It was during all of this time that Gygax once again became a father. Over the past year, he formed a relationship with Gail Carpenter, his former assistant from TSR, and in 1986, November, she gave birth to Gygax's sixth child, Alex, and a biographer named Michael Whitworth believes that this birth of Alex forced Gygax to reconsider his, you know, balancing of work, gaming, and family up until that time that had been dominated by work and gaming, so he kind of realized that he'd been making a lot of mistakes and was at this point, determined to be a good father and make up, you know, some of the damage he had done. Some people would say better late than never. Yeah, better late than never. In 1990, uh, Gygax decided to create an entirely new RPG called The Carpenter Project. It was very complex and rule-heavy, and he also wanted to start creating a horror setting for it called Unhallowed. Once he began working with the help of game designer Mike McCulley, they be, uh, 
Game Designers Workshop became interested in publishing the new system, and it also drew the attention of JVC and NEC, who were looking for a new RPG system and setting to turn the series into a series of computer games. They were not interested in horror, though, and Unhallowed was shelved in favor of a fantasy setting called Mythos. JVC also wanted the name change for the RPG, favoring dangerous dimensions over the Carpenter Project. Work progressed favorably until March 1992 when TSR filed an injunction against Dangerous Dimensions, claiming the name when initials are too similar to Dungeons and Dragons. Gygax, with the approval of NEC and JVC, quickly changed the name to Dangerous Journeys, and work on the new game continued. Marketing for Dangerous Journeys was multi-pronged. In addition to the RPG and setting to be published by Games Designers Workshop and the Mythos computer game being prepared by NEC and JVC, there would also be a series of books based on the, based on the Mythos setting written by Gygax. So in addition to his worst work God, on the RPG and Mythos setting, Gygax wrote three novels released under publisher Penguin Rock and later reprint... Oh my goodness. Later reprinted by Paizo Publishing, The Anubis Murderers, Samarkand Solution, and Death in Delhi. Paizo being the people who made Pathfinder BT dubs. In 1992, Dangerous Journeys was released by Games Designers Workshop, but TSR immediately applied for an injunction against the entire Dangerous Journeys RPG and Mythos setting, arguing that Dangerous Journeys was based on a D&D and AD&D module. Though the injunction failed, TSR moved forward with litigation. Gygax believed the legal action was without merit and fueled by Lorraine's William, Lorraine Williams' personal en enmity, but NEC and JVC both withdrew from the project, killing the Mythos computer game. By 1994, legal costs associated with many months of pre what is this word? Pretrial? No idea. Pre-trial. Pre, pre I'm just an idiot. <laughs> the legal costs with many months of pre-trial discovery had drained all of Gygax's resources. Believing that TSR was also suffering, Gygax offered to settle. In the end, TSR paid Gygax for the complete rights to Dangerous Journeys and Mythos. Although Gygax is well compensated for his years of work on Dangerous Journeys and Mythos, TSR immediately and permanently shelved them both. In 95, he began working on a computer role-playing game called Legendary Adventures. In contrast to the rules-heavy Dangerous Journeys, the new system was to return to simple and basic rules. But he was never able to release a computer game, and instead only able to publish it as a tabletop game. At this point in 1996, TSR was uh, basically done. They had run into massive financial problems and got bought out by Wizards of the Coast. And while they were busy refocusing TSR's products, Christopher Clark of Inner City Games Design approached Gygax in 1997 to suggest that they produce some adventures to sell in game stores while TSR was otherwise occupied. The result was a pair of fantasy adventures published by Inner City Games, a challenge to arms and the ritual of the golden eyes. Gygax introduced some investors to Clark's publication setup, and although the investors were not willing to fund publication of Legendary Adventures, Clark and Gygax formed a partnership called Hecaforge Productions, which is fun to say. <laughs> Gygax was thus able to return to publish Legendary Adventures in 1999. The game was published as a three-volume set, The Legendary Rules for All Players, Legend Master's, Role, Legend Master's Lore, and Beasts of Legend. By the way, Legend is spelled with a J, not a G, making it... Kind of silly to look at because it kind of looks like a dude making a silly face because the two parts of the E look like some eyes and the J looks like a nose. <laughs> Just saying. The new owner of TSR, Wizard of the Coast Peter Atkinson, did not harbor any of Lorraine Williams' ill will towards Gary Gygax, and Atkinson purchased all of Gygax's residual rights to D&D and AD&D for a six-figure sum. Although Gygax did not write any new supplements or books for TSR or Wizards of the Coast, he did agree to write the preface to the 1988 or not, I'm sorry, 1998 adventure, Return to the Tomb of Horrors. 
It was also then that he returned to Dragon Magazine, writing the Up on a Soapbox column from issues number 268 to 320 over the course of about four years. I mean, I feel bad for him. I mean, it would sound like at first everything was going great and then just... Well, then the drugs and the hookers and... Yeah. I mean, that couldn't have been helping. Definitely not. But after all, he was a rock star. So Gygax continued to work on Legendary Adventures, which he believed was his best work, but the sales were not great. In June 11th of 2001, Stephen Schnall and David Schnall of Troll Lord Games announced that Gygax would be writing books for their company. Gygax's early work for Troll Lord includes a series of hardcover books that eventually became to, that eventually came to be called Gygaxian Fantasy Worlds. The first was The Canting Crew, and a, was a look at the roguish underworld. He also wrote The World Builder and Living Fantasy, which are generic game design books usable in many different settings. After the first four books in the series, Gygax stepped down from writing and took on an advisory role, although the, still, the logo still carried his name. Troll Lord also published a few adventures as a result of their partnership with Gygax, including The Hermit, and an adventure intended for D20, also for Legendary Adventures. By 2002, Gygax had given Christopher Clark of Hecaforge an encyclopedic 72,000-word text describing the legendary Earth. Clark split the manuscript up into five books and expanded it, with each of the final books coming to about 128,000 words, giving Hecaforge a God, words are difficult. Giving Hecaforge a third legendary adventures line to supplement the core rules and adventures. Hecaforge managed to publish the first two of those legendary Earth source books, Gazetteer and The Noble Kings and Great Lands, but by 2003, the small company was having financial difficulties. Clark had to ask Troll Lord Games to become an angel investor by publishing the three remaining Legendary Adventures books. On October 9th of 2001, Necromancer Games announced that they would be publishing a D20 version of Necropolis, an adventure originally planned by Gygax for New Infinities and later printed in 1992 as a Mythos adventure by GDW. Gary Gygax's Necropolis was published a year later. He also performed voiceover narration for cartoons and video games. In 2000, he voiced his own cartoons persona in an episode of Futurama, Anthology of Interest 1, that also includes the voices of Al Gore, Stephen Hawking, and Michelle Nichols. Gygax also performed as a guest dungeon master in Delarus Tomb Quest series of the massively multiplayer online role-playing game D&D Online Stormreach. During his time with TSR, Gygax had often mentioned the mysterious Castle Greyhawk, which formed the center of his own home campaign. But despite all of his written output over the previous 30 years, Gygax had never published the details of the castle. In 2003, Gygax announced that he was again partnering with Rob Koontz to publish the original and previously unpublished details of Castle Greyhawk and the City of Greyhawk in six volumes, although the project would use the rules for Castles and Crusades rather than, a, rather than D&D. As Gygax wrote in an online forum, I have laid out a new schematic of castle and dungeon levels based on both my original design of 13 levels plus side adjuncts and the new Castle Greyhawk that resulted when Rob and I combined our, effort, combined our efforts and added in a lot of new levels too. From that, Rob will draft the level plans for the newest version of the work. Meantime, I am collecting all the most salient features, encounters, tricks, traps, and etc. for inclusion on the various levels. So the end result will be what is essentially the best of our old work in a coherent presentation usable by all DMs, the material having all the known and yet-to-be-discussed features of the original work that are outstanding, I hope. Since Wizards of the Coast, which had bought TSR in 97, still owned the rights to the name Greyhawk, Gygax changed the name of Crass of, of Greyhawk. 
of Castle Greyhawk to Castle Zagig, a reverse homophone of his own name, and also changed the name of the nearby city to Yigsburg, a play on his initials EGG. The sale of or the scale of the projects was enormous. By the time Gygax and Kuntz had stopped working on their original home campaign, the castle dungeons had encompassed fifty levels of cunningly complex passages with thousands of rooms and traps. This, plus plans for the city of Yigsburg and counter areas outside the castle and city, would clearly be too much to fit into the proposed six volumes. Gygax decided he would compress the castle dungeons into 13 levels, the size of his original Castle Greyhawk in 1973, by amalgamating the best of what could be gleaned from binders and boxes of old notes. However, neither Gygax nor Kuntz had kept careful or comprehensive plans. Because they had often made up details of play sessions on the spot, they usually just scribbled a quick map as they played with cursory notes about monsters, treasures, and traps. These sketchy maps had to contain just enough detail that the two could ensure their independent work would dovetail. All of these old notes now had to be deciphered, 25-year-old memories dredged up as to what happened in each room, and a decision made whether to keep or discard each new piece. Recreating the city, too, would be a challenge. Although Gygax still had his old maps of the original city, all of his previously published work on the city was owned by Wizards of the Coast, so he would have to create most of the city from scratch while still maintaining the look and feel of his original. Due to creative differences, Coons backed out of the project, but created an adventure module that would be published at the same time as Gygax's first book. Gygax continued to painstakingly put Castle Zagig together on his own, but even this slow and laborious process came to a complete halt when Gary Gygax suffered a stroke in April 2004, and then another one a few weeks later. Although he returned to his keyboard after a seventh month, seventh month, oh my goodness, am I just stupid? A seven month convalescence. His output was reduced from 14 hour workdays to only one or two hours per day. Finally, in 2005, Castle Zagig Part 1, Yigsburg, the first book in the six-book series, appeared. Later that year, Troll Lord Games also published Castle Zagig's Dark Chateau, the adventure module written for the Yigsburg setting by Rob Kuntz. Jeff Talanian helped with the creation of the dungeon, eventually resulting in publication of the limited, edi limited edition CZ9, The East Marks Gazetteer. That same year, Gygax was diagnosed with a potentially deadly abdominal aortic aneurysm. Doctors concurred that surgery was needed, but their estimates of success varied from 50% to 90%. With no firm medical consensus, Gygax came to believe that he would likely die on the operating table, and he refused to consider surgery, although he realized that a rupture of the aneurysm, likely inevitable, would be fatal. In one concession to his condition, he switched from cigarettes, which he had been smoking since high school, to cigars. It wasn't until 2008 that Gygax was able to finish the second volume, second volume of six, Castle Zagig, The Upper Works, which described details of the castle above a ground. The next two volumes are supposed to detail dungeons beneath Castle Zagig. However, before they could be written, Gygax died in March of 2008. Three months after his death, Gygax Games, a new company formed by Gary's widow Gale, withdrew all of the Gygax licenses from Troll Lords and also from Hecaforge. Kind of too bad that... Like, his his final work couldn't be completed. It's a bummer, to be sure. Gygax is, like... <laughs> I've been calling him a rock star this whole time, but, like, it's pretty much true. Yeah, it is. I mean, gaming wouldn't be the same without him. It probably wouldn't be without him. Without Gary Gygax, there would be... Basic, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. Yeah, yeah. We wouldn't have D20 Dudes without Gary Gygax. Absolutely not. Dude, he, he, the dude sounded absolutely wild. Yeah, he was He was a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely had a wild life. And I guess like whenever you suddenly do come into a massive windfall, it, that kind of thing does tend to happen. So 
yeah. I don't know. I, I don't approve of it, but it's definitely not unexpected. And, you know, he, he had a large family, and, you know, 69 years old, that's a pretty long life. Oh, definitely. Like, he didn't die early. Yeah, like, also, like, when I hear people saying that, oh, you know, this person killed this person because of D&D, I actually get really angry, like, unreasonably amounts of uh, amount of anger. Like, there's an episode of this true crime show I like to watch where the police originally suspected a guy because he played D&D. Like, but for why? There, I believe, was at least one instance of at least some form of, some form of murder actually being committed because of D&D, but I'm not going to get into that today. Ned. That's going to be for the Satanic Panic episode. Um, okay. So we're coming up on just about an hour here. Yep. So this is going to be a good place to end it. Yep. Gary Gygax, when I started researching this, I did not expect <laughs> the cocaine and hookers. Really didn't. Who would? When you that was a Gary bit of a left Gygax, turn for that's me. That's not what comes to mind. Oh, my goodness. All right, you're going to roll that dice. We're going to see what uh, next week's episode is going to be. Yeah. Number 17. Uh, after over a year of doing D20 Dudes, we will finally cover Dungeons and Dragons. Yay! Cool beat. So next week we'll be talking about 5e. Finally. Yay! The first, my first, uh, proper system. 5 is pretty good. It is. It's not the best, but it's pretty good. So, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, Links to the Facebook group, to our Twitter, to our Patreon, and to our Discord are in the description as always. But just for funsies, facebook.com slash d20dudes, at d20dudes on Twitter, patreon.com slash d20dudes. Hit us up. We like you. We do. Because you listen to us. It's cool stuff. (laughs) Special thanks to all of our patrons, including you, Jenny. You are a patron. Welcome. You guys, I, I I still don't completely understand why people are paying money for this, but okay. <laughs> and so thank really you, everyone, awesome. for listening. This is very informative. I wouldn't have known any of this without you because I'm too lazy to look it up myself. <laughs> don't I probably wouldn't have known all of this before very recently either. It, it's been a wild ride, but thank everyone for listening, and we will catch you in next week's episode. Bye-bye. Bye bye.